Welcome to tape 11 of the series What We Catholics Believe. This tape is about sin and the sacrament of penance. I remember when I used to speak for the Catholic Evidence Guild in Hyde Park and at street corners, if I ever found myself speaking without an audience, and it's very embarrassing standing up in public talking with nobody there listening, I used to talk about sin and confession. And very soon I would attract an audience, because there's a curiosity about it. So you shouldn't find it too difficult to talk to your youngsters about sin and the sacrament of penance. One of the interesting things about it is that we all have an understanding of sin. Every human being born into the world knows without anyone telling them that certain things are right and other things are wrong. This is universal. It's the God-given light which St. John in the first chapter of his Gospel says enlightens every man who comes into the world. Even Socrates wrote about it. He describes how when one of his pupils asked him about this universal sense of right and wrong, he said to him, well, I can remember when you were a child and you were playing a game with one of your friends and your friend cheated and you got quite cross and said, that's not fair. Now, would you tell me, who taught you that it wasn't fair to cheat? And of course the pupil said, well, nobody did. I just knew. That's right, he said. Everybody knows that things, some things are right and some things are wrong. Cheating is wrong. Stealing, murdering. Doing anything that's unfair. If you watch children lining up, and another child comes, even quite a young child, and pushes in front, they'll all say in unison, that's not fair, take your place. So there's a common moral law written on our hearts. It's called the natural law. Of course we can ignore it or contradict it, but it's still there. And because it's not very exact or detailed, 3,000 years ago, God gave us the Ten Commandments that would be more specific. They don't contradict the natural law. They confirm it. But they tell us exactly what God expects us to do and not do. And of course they were given to Moses when he was leading the Israelites through the desert. And you can read the account of it in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Numbers 1, 2 and 3 are all about our behaviour towards God. At the beginning, he puts his credentials. I am the Lord thy God. He tells us his right, his right alone to make our laws. And then he gives us the first law that we must worship only him. And we must put nothing before him. You remember the Israelites had trouble with that very first one, when they worshipped the golden calf. Now I think we're too sophisticated to do that. But we do still put false gods before the true God if we're not careful. Perhaps we put the amounting of money before him, or happiness, or popularity, or some immediate good that isn't really lawful. 
It's still something we have to watch. The second commandment is to keep his name holy, which means we don't take his name in vain in conversation or swearing. And we do our best not to let others do it in our hearing. And the third commandment, still about God, that we keep the Sabbath day holy. And that, of course, is the Sunday for us now. Because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday and because he chose to send the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. Anyone who reads the Old Testament or who knows Orthodox Jews today will know that the Jews take those three commandments very seriously to only worship the one true God, to treat his name with great reverence and, of course, to keep the Sabbath holy. They were on one tablet. The second tablet of stone had the other seven, number four to ten. And the first one on that tablet was about our parents. These commandments are all to do with our attitude towards our neighbour. And it's interesting that God thinks so highly of the family that the first neighbours he tells us to respect and honour are our own parents. And this holds good for all our family members and for parents to respect and cherish their children. Honour your father and your mother. Care for them, especially in their old age. And children, of course, obey them. Number five forbids murder. Not killing in self-defence if it's necessary, but deliberate murder, which includes suicide, we don't murder ourselves. And of course abortion and the contraception which can be abortive in backup. It also forbids doing any physical harm deliberately to another. Or to ourselves. And number six is about sex. Which is how it's got its name. Because sex is the Latin for six. This says thou shalt not commit adultery. But it includes a lot more. In fact, any sex outside marriage is forbidden. And that includes sex between single people, self-abuse, and same-gender sexual relationships. Number seven, thou shalt not steal. Uh, there's always need to make reparation when we sin. But thieves have a special responsibility because they need to restore what was stolen if they really want forgiveness. And that can be very difficult. I always say to the children, resist the temptation to steal. Because if you steal someone's toy at school, and then you're sorry and you feel guilty, and you will, you've got to return it. Now, all right, you don't have to walk into class and say to it in front of everyone, look, I stole this toy, I'm giving it back. But you do have to make sure that somehow, perhaps discreetly, it gets back to the right person. And that can be very difficult. So try and avoid stealing. Number eight forbids lies, especially lies on oath, solemn lies, or lies in a court of law. And again, especially if they damage anyone else. Number nine forbids us to covet our neighbour's wife or husband, come to that. 
It goes with six because it's about sex again. It also forbids looking at pornography, watching programs or reading books that again to lead us into sexual sins, anything like that. And number ten, the last one, we shouldn't covet our neighbour's goods. Don't envy your neighbours their car or their house or anything. After all, if you love your neighbour, you're pleased when they've got something good. And that, just very briefly, is going through the Ten Commandments. Given to the Jews in the old law, but meant for everybody, as Jesus made clear when he came on earth, because he confirmed them. He said more than once, If you love me, keep my commandments. That means it's no good just saying you love me. You show it by keeping those Ten Commandments. He also rather neatly abbreviated them to just two. One day, when a man in the crowd asked him, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like to this. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. And that's in the 22nd chapter of St Matthew's Gospel. Well, that's amazing that he can say the whole law is in those two commandments. But if you think about it, it is. After all, if you love God, really love God with your whole heart and mind, then of course you will worship him. You will keep his name holy and you will honour his Sabbath day by attending Mass, by resting from servile works. Likewise, if you love your neighbour as yourself, you won't want to steal from him or murder him or any of the other things forbidden in the other seven commandments. So the Ten Commandments are our rule of life. And interestingly, most nations, Catholic or not, work them into their laws. They're the basis of the legal system. Now, because they've been given to us by God, they're not ours to change. They are literally written in stone. And they're not an option. It doesn't matter whether we like them or not, or whether they suit our lifestyle. They're there to be obeyed. And they are absolutely objective. That means in any circumstances, they remain constant. However strongly we feel like doing something, or we think our circumstances justify it, we can't make them subjective to that. They're as true and as objective as, for instance, the law of gravity. You can't say, oh, we'll manage without the law of gravity. It'd be awkward to have it at the moment. It's there. You abide by it or you find yourself in trouble. Same is true about the laws that have come to us from God, the Ten Commandments. Now, when you're presenting these to your children or your young people or the people you're instructing, try and show that they're not there to make life difficult for us. 
It isn't as if God was saying, oh, you'll probably enjoy that. I'll stop you doing it. If we're not careful, that's how they could look. But it's not at all the right way to look at them. They're put there for our good and for our happiness. And that's how we must present them. They're given to us by a loving father. Who, because he loves and understands each one of us, even better than we love and understand ourselves, knows our true nature and wants what's best for us even more than we do. So try and show them that happiness in this world, let alone in the next, comes with keeping the commandments. Guilt, and we all feel guilty if we break them, because we know in our hearts they're true. Guilt makes us all unhappier. It's probably easier to show this with the seven commandments against our neighbour than with the three against God, to begin with. Thieves and murderers are not proud of their behaviour. Those who cheat on their marriage vows are not really happy about it. And the commandments towards Almighty God are the same. We know deep down that we owe God adoration. That we shouldn't take his holy name in vain. And that we cannot ignore his Sabbath day without losing something precious. Try and show these commandments as maker's instructions. Because that's what they are. Instructions from our maker, who knows how we work. Compare them with uh, buying a new machine of some kind. If I get a new washing machine, for instance, it comes with a little booklet telling me how to use it to get the best out of it and also not to damage it. So before I start using it, if I have any sense, I will read the book, learn the rules and get the best from my purchase. Once we look at the commandments in a positive way like that, I think we have the right attitude to them. I wouldn't underestimate them. They can be hard to keep. Jesus never pretended otherwise. He talked about taking up your cross daily and following him. But although they can be hard, they are never impossible. God never commands us to do something beyond our powers. Because he always makes an issue of grace to go with any difficult situation. Particularly if we turn to him and ask for help. He will help us with it. So prepare them that there are going to be times when perhaps it's very difficult not to commit adultery when they're older, obviously. Or not to steal or not to lie. And they pray. And they make an effort. And God helps them. He said to us, in Matthew 11 it's reported, My yoke is sweet and my burden light. So there's a burden, but it's a light burden. It's manageable. And St John in his first epistle told his converts, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not heavy. So he'd found that out. So don't imagine that young people cannot keep pure today just because society and the media are thrusting them in the opposite direction all the time. 
They can. It'll be difficult. And they will have to be protected from too much media. And perhaps from unfortunate friends. But they can do it. The psalmist thanked God for the laws. And so should we. These commandments are consistently voiced by the Church of God. And that's how we learn to understand them. And that's how we know how we should act in any given circumstance. Our conscience, which is part of our intellect, and again, common to every human being. Our conscience doesn't decide what's right and wrong. Not in the objective sense. God decides that. That's his prerogative. Our conscience tells us if what we're thinking of doing or what we've just done is right or wrong in the light of God's teaching and the teaching of his church. So we need to have an informed conscience, a conscience that knows what the teaching is. And we also need to be honest enough to let our conscience and the church and the scriptures guide us and not our natural inclinations which all too easily in human beings can take over. For instance, you can imagine somebody saying, I know I shouldn't go around shoplifting. I know it's breaking the seventh commandment, thou shalt not steal. But there's all those nice things and I can't afford them and the stores won't miss them. So it's all right for me to do it. Or they might say it about contraception. Or I can make up my own mind whether that's right for us in our circumstances. Well, no, it's not. If the church has given a teaching on it, speaking with the voice of God, that's what will tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's when you ignore that, you go against the teaching or the revelation of God, that's when you fall into sin. And that's what we're talking about as well today, as well as the Ten Commandments. The little catechism says, what is sin? Sin is an offence against God by any thought, word, deed or omission against the law of God. And that again is a very simple definition, but a very complete one. Sin can be divided into two kinds, two main kinds, original sin and actual sin. Original sin is the sin that Adam and Eve committed, which has affected all of us, which means we're born into the world without grace. We need baptism. and also means that we've got this tendency to sin. But the one we're talking about today is actual sin. And those are the sins we actually commit ourselves, we're responsible for. And again, they can be divided into two, mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins, from their name, means deadly. They are so serious. Deliberate murder of somebody, something like that. They are so serious that they destroy the share of God's life that we have in our souls. They take all our grace. Our soul is to all intents and purposes dead with none of God's life. We are unable to survive in heaven in a state of mortal sin. It's a very serious state to be in. Venial sins are less serious, 
though they're still sins and they damage our relationship with God. They weaken the life in our souls that we receive from God, but they don't destroy it altogether. Now, with our damaged human natures, Jesus knew only too well that sin was almost inevitable even after we had been baptised. And that if we committed mortal sin, we would be in trouble. We can't go and get rebaptized. You're only ever baptized once. And that's why he gave us the sacrament of penance. A wonderful gift out of his mercy. Now when you're preparing children to receive the sacrament of penance for the first time, they need to hear how Jesus went about forgiving sins when he was on earth. Stories are beautiful. The story of the paralysed man let down through the roof in Matthew 9, <clears throat> who lay there at the feet of Jesus, unable to move, waiting to be cured. But when Jesus looked at him, he saw that he also had sins on his soul, and to him that was the more serious problem. So the first thing he said was, Be of good cheer, son. Your sins are forgiven you. And of course that scandalised the people in the room who were listening. Only God can forgive sins, they were saying to each other. What does he think he's doing? So then Jesus went on to say, To show you, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralysed, Take up your bed and walk. And he stood up, rolled up his stretcher and walked out of the room. That's a very important story to give children. So important that Matthew, Mark and Luke all recorded it. Jesus also forgave Mary Magdalene her sins, which were notorious, but she was repentant, so she got them forgiven. The woman taken in adultery was forgiven. Zacchaeus, who used to cheat his fellow Jews and keep some of the money they were giving as taxes, he was forgiven. He also told parables about forgiveness because he was very anxious to show that God is merciful. And St. Luke gives us a beautiful parable of the prodigal son whose father represents God. And the father in that story could not do enough for his son once he repented. And that shows us how pleased God is with a repentant sinner can't do enough for them. And St. Luke also tells us about the Good Shepherd. Jesus left the rest of the flock, the Good Shepherd who is Jesus, left the rest of the flock to hunt out the little lamb who had got lost. All these stories need to be related to the children. So they see Jesus forgiving sins. They realise he had the power he realised that's what he wants to do once people are sorry. Then it's quite natural to go on to the first Easter Sunday evening. Jesus knew that in six weeks he would be ascending to heaven. And the people would still commit sins. So he wanted to give this power that he had as God to his apostles. So he passed the power on to the eleven apostles making it very solemn. He had been sitting eating with them in the upper room. And he rose to his feet 
And as with any solemn occasion, he invoked all the members of the Trinity. He said to them, As the Father has sent me, so do I send you. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive you the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And in those words, he gave his first priests the power to forgive sins. From then on, they had the power they hadn't had before to forgive each other and to forgive other penitents who came to them. He instituted the sacrament of penance. And he made it quite clear how he wanted it to act by the way he gave it. Whose sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they're retained. Implies you would need to hear the sins and make a judgment. If somebody comes to you and says, yes, I'm living with someone who's not my wife. I'm sorry about it, but I'm going to go on doing it. Or I've stolen a large sum of money. And I'm sorry, I feel guilty, but I'm not going to repay it. You do not forgive them. You have to retain. Because they're not really sorry. Or they would put it right. So sins have to be heard. Confession on the part of the penitent is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. It wasn't with Jesus, of course, because he knew our sins. He knew the sins of the penitents who came to them. But the apostles are only human beings, and our priests are only human beings. So they have to hear the sins. And that's why general absolution is invalid and will not forgive sins, except in a real emergency. I mean, if you're on a plane, which is fast crashing to the ground, and a priest happens to be on board, fine, he can get to his feet, he can give all the passengers and crew general absolution. But it has to be as much an emergency as that. Even on the ship Titanic, when that was sinking, we know that there was a good young priest who stayed on board, who could have been rescued, but chose to stay on board to hear confessions. And we're told by some of the survivors who got away in the boats that as they were getting on the boats, he was sitting there listening to individual sacramental confessions, one after the other. All right, at the very end, when the ship was actually disappearing under the water, he may have given general absolution if there was anyone left who hadn't got to confession. We don't know. But he put individual confession that high that even in those circumstances, he was listening to those people individually. It's a wonderful power to be able to give people absolution, forgiveness for their sins, to bring people back in the church, give them grace in their souls again. It's a terrible thing to abuse it by misusing it, by general absolution. And of course it's a power that has been passed on down the church since apostolic times. Small apostolic succession. The priests we go to confession to receive the power to give us forgiveness from a bishop who himself had received it from a bishop, who had received it from a bishop, and you can go way back through the generations till you get to someone who received it from the apostles, who received it from Christ. 
That's what the apostolic succession means. You also need to assure the children of the absolute secrecy of confession. The priest can never mention anything that's said to anybody outside the confessional. He can't even talk about it to the penitent. Once they've gone outside, he can inside the confessional, of course. He can discuss it or advise them. But once the confession is over, mention of that sin never leaves his lips. And that is priests, all priests, take that extremely seriously. We've had priests who've died rather than reveal what was said in confession. Also, I think it's a good thing to give children the right to be anonymous in confession. And the priest, of course, the right to hear people anonymously. It's a right both penitents and priests have. <coughs> the traditional confessional, which really consists of two separate rooms, divided by a little window with a grill, is the ideal place for that. It's also a very good protection for the priest against allegations of abuse and any youngster against abuse. There has never been a case or even an allegation of abuse using a traditional confessional because it would be impossible. You're not even in the same room. So I think that ordin always offer the ordinary traditional confessional. <clears throat> I think the preparation of a confession, for first confession, is very important. Because the way they, you prepare them for that and the way they make their first confession will colour their confessions all through their lives. You need to teach them they have free will. That they choose how they behave. That they decide if they're going to sin or not. Not the friends who perhaps suggest it to them or the devil who might tempt them too. <coughs> and temptation is never a sin, of course. Jesus was tempted and he never sinned. The person who makes us sin is, I'm afraid, <coughs> ourselves. And I always try and get that from the children. You did something naughty. Who made you do it? And they have to think and say, I decided myself. We're all too apt to blame someone else who perhaps just suggested it. We can always say no. We can say no to the devil. He can't make us. He's powerless then. We decide whether we sin or not. And a sin, of course, is a deliberate choosing to do something we know to be wrong. And children need lots of examples, made-up stories, just so they know exactly what kind of things are sins and what kind of things are not. Someone who gets all their sums wrong, for instance, hasn't committed a sin. We unfortunately, we're inclined to say, oh, aren't you a good boy if their sums are all right? We shouldn't really. Clever boy would be better, perhaps. Accidents are not sins. I remember when I was preparing a class for confession, somebody brought me some flowers. And I sent two little boys out with a vase to get some water. Well, we all heard the crash when they dropped it. And as they came back into the class, one of them said very loudly, <coughs> and very much for my benefit, She won't be cross. It wasn't a sin. It was an accident. Now, his theology was faultless. Unfortunately, we do get cross with children and others too when accidents happen that cause us inconvenience or trouble. 
We should try not to. God certainly doesn't. He sees the world of difference between an accident and a sin. A sin would be deciding deliberately not to say prayers when they'd remembered, but they weren't going to bother. Or to play about in church. Or to swear. <clears throat> or to try and avoid mass. You can't say missing mass to small children, though they can teach them that when they're older. Those are the sins against God. Then for the neighbours, and within the family first, always, disobedience to their parents, and explain what that means, of course. Rudeness, being unkind to anybody, spitefulness, temper, pinching and punching, stealing, and always explain about restitution, taking part in dirty talk or jokes, and they need to be very strong to walk away from that. Envying others. Anything that goes against any of the commandments that you can put into a context of something that might, they might come across in their ordinary everyday life shows them what sins are. They'll be good at making them up as well and that helps all the others. Now, if they're going to confess these sins, they have to learn to examine their conscience. That sounds difficult. It just means think back and try and remember at least some of the things they've done wrong. Nobody's expected to remember every little thing. But if they can remember at least one, they can go to confession. I think it helps if you can get them in the habit of thinking at night time, before they go to sleep, when they're saying the night prayers, what they've done wrong that day. And if a parent, at least one parent, would go up to bed with them and say their prayers with them, that would help enormously, even if it's just for the time they're being prepared for their first confession. I know I used to go through the day with my son Michael and think of the things he'd done, which wasn't always difficult. And he used to repay me by going through the day for me and telling me what I'd done wrong. And that's fine. After all, we commit sins too. It's quite a good thing for them to realise that. When they find out the sins, they must know how to tell them. Keep it as simple as possible. They don't need to tell a long story and a lot of details. If the priest wants to ask questions, he can. And also to say whether they've done something once, if they remember that, or a few times, or often, just generally. Now, if they're taught all this carefully, they go into confession confident. And that's what you want. I always tell them they've got some things to do before confession. For instance, ask for help. Jesus and Mary, our mother, will help them to make a good confession. Find out their sins. Decide what they're going to tell the priest. And then, and this is the most important, tell God that they are sorry. Confession is useless. The sacrament of penance just doesn't work if we're not sorry. So that's essential. They say the act of contrition, and they mean that they're, going to, they're really sorry and they're going to try and do better. That's what being sorry means. Now, we could not have our sins forgiven in confession if Jesus hadn't suffered and died for them. That's why in every confessional you will see a crucifix. Remind you the grace you're going to get, the forgiveness you're going to get, comes directly from Jesus and his suffering. So it's very fitting that the fifth sorrowful mystery of the rosary, which we're going to say today, 
is the one about Jesus' crucifixion and death on the cross. For this one, we remember how after Jesus had carried his cross up the hill of Calvary, he was stripped of his outer garments by the soldiers who cast lots for them. So fulfilling as St. John tells us the prophecy. And then, of course, he was nailed to the cross. Crucifixion was unbelievably awful. Contemporary accounts of other crucifixions tell us that a soldier would have had to kneel on his chest while his hands were nailed to the crossbar he had carried up the hill of Calvary. And once that was attached to the upright, his feet would have been nailed to the vertical wood that was always standing at the hill of Calvary. Now hanging like that on a cross, in order to breathe, he had to press down on the dreadful wounds in his feet to fill his lungs. But excruciating as this must have been, he immediately filled his lungs with air to pray for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Setting us a wonderful example of forgiveness. But they hadn't said they were sorry or repented, but he still forgave them immediately. Then he reassured the repentant thief that he will be with him that day in paradise. And to his mother and St. John and Mary's sister and Mary Madeline, who were now standing at the foot of the cross, he said, Woman, behold thy son. And to St. John, Behold thy mother. And St. John tells us that he took her to his own from that hour. The church teaches that as well as making provision for Our Lady, this means that Jesus, who had given us everything that day, including his life, even gave us, his human brothers and sisters, his own mother to be our heavenly mother. She has been our mother ever since. Jesus hung on the cross for three long hours. Then, with a loud cry of, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he died. That is, his soul departed from his body. So that when Pilate sent soldiers to break the legs of the three of them to ensure that their bodies didn't remain hanging into the Sabbath day, the centurion, seeing that Jesus was already dead, didn't break his legs, but opened his side with a spear. And St John tells us that blood and water came out, again fulfilling two prophecies, and opening up the ocean of divine mercy for the whole world, for all we sinners. So that's the story we think of while we say the prayers of that mystery. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening to this tape with me. Next one is going to be about our Blessed Lady. I hope you'll be able to listen to that too. May God bless you all.